Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today on the show is Ian Shoemaker. Ian Shoemaker is the head coach at Central Washington University. In his first three seasons, he led the team to a 19-12 and 12 record. Under his guidance, the Wildcats are averaging 32.8 points per game. Since his arrival, the Wildcats are averaging 387.7 yards of total offense per game. The Grinnell College graduate was a four-year starter in both football and baseball and earned a degree in psychology. He was the football most valuable player and offensive back of the year and set school records for home runs in a season and career in baseball. Shoemaker is known for his use of technology and flip learning to best help his players understand and execute the Wildcats systems. Coach Shoemaker, welcome to the Coaching Coordinator Show. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. All right, so let's fill in some of the blanks. We know you were at Baldwin-Wallace College, now Baldwin-Wallace University, and we know you're at Central Washington. So give us a little bit of a a rundown on your career, where it's taken you, and, and what were the things that you took away from each of those stops along the way? Well, I uh, was fortunate enough to, uh, you know, grow up here in the in the West Coast in the Northwest uh, Washington, and you know, went out to a small school in, in Iowa, Grinnell College, played my ball there, played football and baseball, and then uh, got into the coaching profession uh, through a, an opportunity at Western Washington University in my graduate school years. I was a running back coach and tight end coach and uh, got a chance to get started there for the first couple of years. Uh, once I finished at Western Washington, I went to St. Mary College, uh, now it's, I think St. Mary University in Kansas. I was 25 years old. I was a head baseball coach and offensive coordinator of a startup NAIA program where I, uh, you know, helped build the field, you know, set up the uniforms, do all the recruiting for that first class at 25 and didn't know how, uh, how unprepared I was at that point, but it was a great year there. And then the head coach I was there with, uh, got the head job at Minot state university up in North Dakota. I uh, had a great run up there, uh, you know, three years, uh, in North Dakota, you know, Minot was a, was a tough spot, but, uh, we got that place to where, uh, my last year there, we had a first team all American quarterback running back and wide receiver at the NAI level, which is, uh, you know, in my coaching career has been, you know, pretty unheard of. And I haven't been able to replicate that, uh, anywhere else, uh, after that, uh, I was, you know, coaching both football and baseball and 
got an opportunity to uh, get out of doing that. That was a heck of a deal to, to coach both, be a head baseball coach and a coordinator and uh, and still try to recruit and have spring ball and uh, fall ball for baseball and all those things. So uh, I decided to you know, kind of decide which way to go and decided on doing the football end of things and went to Kenyon College, a Division three school in the you know, central part of Ohio. Uh, spent three years there. Uh, you know, learned a lot as far as uh, you know dealing with the high academic piece. You know, the uh, you know those, those kids that are coming in with that 27 average ACT on the football team, and you know dealing with numbers issues. We had uh, I think 23 kids in the first meeting when I took that job, and you know tried to build that up. By the time we were done. Uh, had a pretty decent run with six and four the last year there after they had been over uh, the years prior uh, to arriving, and then uh, was fortunate enough to uh, you know get to get the opportunity at uh, Baldwin Wallace, uh, and uh, you know we had a uh, two-year deal there, and then uh, my six years prior to coming to Central, I was at St. Cloud State University in Minnesota. Uh, we were in the national playoffs uh, a, a few years uh, there of the of the six I was there, and then uh, you know had a couple of young kids while I was up at St. Cloud and looked at you know the opportunity to get back closer to home to grandparents and things like that. And, and Central Washington opened up, and uh, they was fortunate enough to kind of win the interview and, and get the job here. And you know we're trying to uh, you know set an environment for consistent uh, success, which they've had in the past, and trying to keep that going here right now. And um, that's that's been my track, and uh, that's what's brought me back uh, back to the Northwest. So you really had some some responsibilities as a young guy, being a, a, a head baseball coach and then being a coordinator. And I'm sure along the way you uh, you did some things that you look back now and say, "Wow, why did I do that?" But what what were some mistakes you made as a young coach, and what did you learn from it? Well, I think you know not having a a system in place, you know, having a a little bit more of a play-based idea, you know, that combining things that didn't really fit together. You know, we, uh, you know, even my time at uh, St. Mary and then the first, you know, years at Minot, we were, you know, 21 personnel run, you know, sprint and draw and power and ISO and things like that. And then, you know, everything I knew passing game-wise was West Coast, 11 personnel, you know, Washington State, Mike Price, uh, you know, 60s and 90s pass game. And, and we we were trying to combine those and those just didn't fit. So I think that was probably the, the biggest mistake, uh, you know, that we made uh, along the way schematically. Obviously there was a bunch of other mistakes on, you know, how to build relationships and recruiting to, you know, managing a budget, managing uh, a staff, you know, those are things that I was, ill-prepared for and, uh, you know, tried to grow from and, you know, trying to get this head job, uh, you know, after a, you know, a long time off of being a head coach. Uh, I think that was a, you know, important part of, you know, just the leadership piece, you know, at 25, I, you know, could handle some things, but, you know, there was a lot more to it than I was ready to deal with. We certainly have uh, a lot to learn from our mistakes, but I think also you probably received some great advice in your career as well. What's the best piece of uh, coaching advice you've received? Well, I think, you know, and it, it probably goes back to well before even getting into coaching, but I was recruited by Frosty Westerly, who's a, you know, a great coach out here at Pacific Lutheran, uh, you know, a Hall of Fame guy in the NAI level, and, uh, you know, had a great run in Division Three as well when the, when the school transitioned. And, you know, just going through that recruiting process coming out of high school and listening to that guy and then you know reading up on him as we go through and, and things like that is you know is his idea of making the big time where you're at 
you know, never, never looking for the next job. You know, I've been fortunate. I've only applied for two jobs uh, in my career. I applied for uh, my job after my GA at Western to get the job in St. Mary. And I applied for this job uh, to leave uh, St. Cloud to get back out here. Otherwise, all those other jobs have been, you know, opportunities that have arisen from doing a good job where I was. Some guys calling or asking about you know, what we were doing or what I was thinking uh, for the future. And, you know, that's been, you know, very fortunate track. I know that's not everybody's experience in college football. And, uh, you know, I know that probably won't be my experience throughout the rest of my career, but that's been my, uh, my deal this, you know, thus far. And, you know, do the best job you can where you're at, you know, not looking for that next job, but that next job opportunity opens up and it's a better one, you know, you have to be open to it, but, you know, making the big time where you're at, I think, is uh, probably the best advice I've had and, you know, kind of that singular mindset of just being focused on what you're trying to get done. Definitely something that young guys want to pay attention to because you, you could get caught up in that looking for the grass is greener opportunity and miss out on what's in front of you as well. And you just have to, you know, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to the kids you coach and the program you're in uh, to really be there and be, be present, be engaged in it like like it is the best job opportunity you have. So uh, completely agree with that and certainly a good piece of advice. Um, so you've mentioned all these places that, you know, have picked up the phone and called you. So obviously you have some area of expertise or something you feel like maybe has gotten you those opportunities. What would you say that is and kind of what's what's become your philosophy in, in that area? Well, I think obviously I've been an offensive guy. From the time I, I left Western Washington as a running back and tight ends coach, I've coached quarterbacks and coordinated uh, some level of the passing game or the whole offense, you know, so since I was, you know, whatever, 25, I've been calling plays everywhere I've been and, and, and getting a chance to, you know, make mistakes and grow and, and plan out the, you know, the offensive plan and, and call the game on Saturday. So, you know, I've been fortunate to, to do that everywhere I've been and, and hopefully getting out of that a little bit here, uh, you know, as a head coach, I'd like to try to not do that. But the last three years, I've still been kind of just in that same mode. Uh, but, you know, philosophy wise, uh, you know, we want to be uh, a balanced team. That, that's, uh, you know, play call balance has been one of the driving forces in my uh, philosophy offensively. We want to be able to run the ball successfully and we want to be able to pass the ball successfully. We want to be in a situation on down and distance, personnel group, field position, all those situations in a position where the defense plays neutral. I don't want a defense to be able to load the box with, you know, eight to ten guys uh, on run downs, and I don't want guys to be able to drop eight uh, on pass situations. I want those guys to have to play neutral. You know, give me a, a base look, uh, you know, six-man box and two high shell, and, you know, force them to play both sides of the field and, and uh you know, all all edges and all those things. And, and just, you know, if we can be at the end of the season, you know, close to that 50-50 mark, run pass in um, all those situations, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's times to build tendencies, uh, you know, so you can break them later. But, you know, for the most part, uh, we try to be balanced. And I think that's the first and foremost deal. Sure. And you mentioned in your earlier days being kind of fragmented and having like a 21 personnel run game, having 11 personnel pass game what have you become or what defines you guys right now I guess uh, schematically or personnel wise well we're, we're we try to play 11 personnel or we want to have a tight end on the field all the time 
uh, that, you know, that's been uh, one of those things that provides us a lot of flexibility in the RPO game, gives us a little bit more gap scheme possibilities and, and those deals. We're probably a 40% of the time, two tight ends on the field, 12 personnel, 60% of the time, 11 personnel with just one tight end and three receivers. But the philosophy of those guys have to be able to align in every formation. We have to be able to be open formations and provide matchup issues in 12 and 11 and not ever be limited in our formation in our play column. So all of our tight ends, all of our receivers, our receivers got to be able to line up in tight end positions. Our tight ends got to be able to line up in receiver positions and develop those uh, those types of uh, situations that uh, provide us the, the best matchups. And whatever that uh, comes down to, you know, is it a matchup in the passing game or a matchup in the run game? Is it an extra gap? Uh, that is provided by, you know, setting those extra tight ends in the game. You know, whatever we need, everybody's got to be able to do it. So we don't have formations by personnel group. We just have a personnel group on the field that can run all of the different things that we have in our system. You mentioned in tight ends, in in, in the advent in, in this time of spread football, uh, they've become kind of hard to find, especially in recruiting and, and as you move down the levels. I know at the Division three level, we always had to take guys who were bigger receivers and bulk them up. Where a lot of those guys were quarterbacks. Some of them were maybe fullback linebackers in, in high school. How, what's that like at your level at Division two? Are you guys still having to convert guys, or are you able to go out and find them in recruiting? Uh, it's probably a little bit of a mix. Uh, you know, if we're going to get that 6'5 kid that's really going to turn into a – 230, 245 uh, guy, and that's, you know, at our level, that's a pretty decent sized kid. A lot of times that guy's going to come out of a conversion uh, from a quarterback position or a big receiver, you know, kind of growing into it. Um, you know, we can find good 6'3, 225 good football players, but, you know, those guys that are the next level, you know, national level type of tight ends, we probably are converting a lot of times and stretching a lot of times for those guys, hoping that that quarterback kid or that big receiver kid is going to be able to be physical enough. You do have to, you know, take a shot here and there on a frame kid that, you know, gosh, I hope he's going to be as physical as I like him to be. And obviously you mentioned, you know, 90% of the time you have at least one of them on the field. So what do you feel are the benefits of, of having that guy on the field rather than being maybe in like a 10 personnel or, or empty set? I think empties, and not to, I mean, we run a ton of empties, don't get me wrong, but I think empty zero personnel and 10 personnel at times can limit the, the gap responsibilities of the defense. It can, you know, in, engage a more of a blitz mindset where they know they can outnumber you protection-wise. I think with having a tight end, even if you're open, just having that in that pre-snap call for the defensive coordinator, he's got to think, oh, this could be a seventh gap. This could be a seven-man protection. This could be something else that we have to deal with. Um, you know, and he's got to have a call in, uh, you know, that, that uh, accounts for those other things. You know, a sprint-out package, a, uh, you know, a seven-man drop-back, seven-man play-action package. You know, he's got to be able to defend all those things, even if I'm going to go out and empty with two tight ends in the game or one tight end in the game. I can go a line and empty, but he has got to make a base call to start with and then try to get a check through when he sees the formation. And I think that puts us in a little bit of more of an advantage. I think adding, you know, more gap scheme possibilities with power and counter and the RPOs that come off of that 
just by moving that tight end around and off the line. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that's uh, probably the biggest bane of defensive coordinators right now is what's their plan for off the line tight ends with the tight end slicing back or faxing back across the formation. Uh, so, again, most of the time we're in 11, that tight end's off the ball most of the time just to add that. Uh, you know, a little bit more eye discipline to the defense and force those guys to account for that slicing, faxing tight end. Yeah, definitely. When you add that kind of dynamic to your offense, it becomes a, a heck of a lot more difficult than if you defend a, a two-by-two spread or a, a three-by-one spread. And I think also, you know, ha- exactly like you said, having the tight end on the field but then using him in a different spot or being able to keep in that personnel group and and you know, go to a two by two spread set um, certainly becomes an advantage to you, both personnel matchup wise, but also I think in exactly like you said, getting that call out of the defensive coordinator where, you know, he might be worried about extra gaps and staying sound and, and gap responsibility. It might stay away from some of the stuff that he would get into if you were if he knew you were lining up just a two-by-two spread. No question. Like I said, I think just that possibility of moving the pocket in a sprint-out scenario, which we do a lot of, and and running just some seven-man slide protection, you know, uh, basic, you know, slide protection against all those blitz spots, I think makes it uh, a lot harder on a defense coordinator to call that. Just have that possibility out there in the back of his mind. You know, when I throw four receivers on the field, he knows all he's got to do is defeat six-man pro. You know, that that's right. a, you know, a basic deal. Now, obviously, you can get it done with 20 personnel, but that's kind of the same thing. It's the same idea in 11 with the pandemic off. You're getting all those same protections that you would in 20. It's just not who we've been. We've just been more of a feature back, single back deal with tight ends instead of two backs. But it's the same idea. Um, and I think that the tight end alignment a lot of times will threaten the four verticals a little faster than 20 personnel. Flipping the switch a little bit and focusing on teaching. I mean, you know, we all love the scheme and do those things, but obviously that's kind of a little bit more of the science of coaching. Looking at the art of it, the teaching side of things, what are some of the best things you guys are doing right now, you and your staff, to get the understanding you need to have that execution on game day? Well, I think, you know, and we've talked about this in the past, but flipping the classroom has been something that we kind of got going on at St. Cloud before coming here. So for about seven years now, we've been uh, videotaping our installation of all of our offensive information from formations and signals and uh you know the full installation of running inside zone or running an rpo or whatever that is and videotaping all of that breaking it up putting it into our you know huddle system and then providing that to the guys the day before the actual installation meeting and then we do a you know a pre-assessment at the beginning of meetings a lot of times and just say hey what do our guys understand you know uh a clicker test, if you will. Uh, we use a free software deal that you can use their phone uh, to uh, come in and take the test to is begin that, the day. Uh, and Socrative? Socrative is what we've been using just because that's what we started with uh, about six, seven years ago, and I just haven't got away from it. A lot of the tests are still there. Uh, it's nice because, you know, like I said, we're dealing with kids that, you know, have a phone attached to them, and now we can ask them, to, hey, take your phone out use your phone in this meeting to actually make us better uh, instead of saying, hey, trying to keep their hands off or their eyes off their phone. 
take advantage of what they're used to seeing, you know, and putting a test on there with, uh, you know, pictures of formations or questions about route depths and break points and things like that, uh, I think is a, is a big advantage for us. You know, we have a, you know, our kid now has access to the installation, uh, you know, as much as he needs it, we can uh, stream it to them uh, instead of giving it all a full playbook to them. Day one, we can stream exactly what they're getting. Our kids don't get playbooks. They get uh, notebooks, uh, you know, templated notebooks so that everything they do that they are able to take home with them and paper is a, a form of a note that they've taken. Yeah, that's a, a, a great method of doing it. And I think you're able to hit those learning styles, uh, all the different learning styles a little bit. And then also I tell this to guys all the time, I want to do it this way because, you know, we sit in this room, you don't get the opportunity to rewind me. You know, you don't get the opportunity right. to hit pause on me and, and take notes. So that's we're going to we're going to use our meeting times a little bit differently. We're not going to sit here and lecture and present. We're going to actually teach and get into it and have you guys up on the board and have you guys talk through film or maybe we'll get, you know, get a walkthrough. Or, or the thing I got into this year is for offensive line, we created a I mean, we call it a simulation room where we were using uh, free uh, 3D technology. Uh, from Go Army Edge and projecting the defense up on the wall and picking up all our blitzes and, uh, you know, uh, run run against movement and all those types of things with, uh, you know, a Madden-like video game with those guys coming at them. Yeah, no, I was always trying to find that thing that, you know, would, would help us out. Obviously, uh, you know, funding and, uh, and dollars and cents and, and things like that kind of go into it at times. But, you know, the soccer tip is free. You already have huddle. You know, the, you already have the videotaping, you know, possibilities. None of this stuff that we're doing right now, technology-wise, costs us anything more than having our huddle subscription that we, you know, that everybody's got to have. The one thing we did do this year is we bought drones. So technology-wise, best thing we ever did. Oh yeah. Uh, bought two drones uh, and are flying those at practice and filming it from one angle. So we actually save money because we have less money out to our work study. Because now you just right. need two people instead of four people to get wide and tight on on both the offense and defensive field. Now we just have two guys flying drones, and the film is great. The uh, you know the view is is you know is Madden-ish. You know it looks right. like a, a Madden game. You're getting the full 22 like you do in the NFL. Um, and then like I said, it it gets around and can move around quick and get to different drills. Uh, you don't have to worry about changing. You know where's the lift going to be today and and how what you know what's our grass look like and stuff like that. So the drone deal was was awesome for us. And uh, you know I wouldn't uh, I, I would say we're going to try to you know keep that going or even expand it. Yeah, for sure. I I actually writ, wrote a, a piece last year on using drones and a lot of it. And you'll remember this. A lot of it came from my time at BW when we would uh, go to the Browns facility in spring and basically get that view with our guys way up in the the rafters filming almost straight down on us. That was the best view. And you only needed, like you said, one view. And the view was actually much better than either of the separate ones. You could get a lot more uh, feedback from those. So I I keep saying all the time, it's a great use of your funds for exactly that reason. It's going to pay for itself in year one with what you pay out in in work study to have, you know, the extra filmer to to get the other view. So the unfortunate thing is you can't get those in the games because no one lets you fly, fly them over the stadium. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. We're not, we're not getting it at game time. We still got to have a lift. You know, we looked at it as probably, you know, about a, $1,800 $1,800 investment, and we were paying that out, and then some with work study hours. So uh, it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a hard sell. 
it's a cool thing to sell to your boosters. You know, I mean, obviously, I don't know if I'm talking to high school guys or college guys or whatever, but whatever booster you're dealing with, it's an easy one to sell because, you know, a lot of times those guys want to fly it for you even. Yeah. With uh, with the drones, where did, where did you get those uh who did you purchase them through? Uh, we did do them online. We got the Phantom version. Um, I would have to get with our, our film guys to tell you exactly, but I think we just did them off of Amazon, uh, and they were a great deal. We didn't get the highest level. You know, Phantom's come out with a four. I think I think we we're in the three range uh, right now. But, you know, for us, we weren't going to be able to capture the level of film that was coming out of the four in the huddle anyway. So the three seem to be fine as far as the resolution and all that stuff. I don't, I'm not the, the best as far as that goes, but that was kind of the decision. Like, Hey, we can, you know, we can live with the, you know, this is the highest that we're going to be able to capture day to day and huddle anyway. Uh, so we didn't go to the highest, uh, the newest model of the Phantom, but I think we got the three uh, professional or three business level of, of the, uh, of the phantom oh, awesome I, I could go all day with this stuff with you shoe we'll have <laughs> we'll have to talk about it in nashville some more or whatever when, right. when uh, that's coming up but let's get uh, uh into a little bit about your program and i think everybody talks now about the importance of culture and building a culture so what are the things you're doing to build a culture in your program well you know the the first thing when we got here is we we asked our kids to build a you know a, a core value system uh, we asked them to define what it meant to be a wildcat in this program uh, tried to harken back to you know some of the past where they've had great success and we've tried to bring speakers in uh, you know kind of like we did at Baldwin Wallace uh, Coach Snell did a great job of doing that, and uh, I kind of did that same thing here. And alumnus come in and speak on the field before walkthrough on Friday, and try to keep those guys around for the game on the next day. Uh, and uh, you know we've had some success with that. But the core value piece was really good for us. I'm looking at it; it's on my wall. Uh, we have them defined. Uh, we have five core values, and the way we did it is we asked, we broke our team up into ten small groups when I first got here. Had those guys go out. We did some scavenger hunts, some you know team building activities and things like that. You know some silly stuff to kind of get them going. And then we kind of you know cherry picked ten words that we wanted them to define that we thought were important as a coaching staff. Uh, and then we defined those each of those small groups defined in one word. And then we brought those definitions back from the team uh, to the, you know, from those each small group teams to the, the, the bigger team and then presented them and each group presented their definition of those words. And then we decided to vote on what they thought were the most important. And it was kind of a pretty clear delineation of five words that kind of took over. And, you know, the first one is loyalty, uh, integrity, uh, selflessness, relentlessness, and then having grit. And those are the five words that are our core values that we, you know, work on. You know, we talk about each week. You know, we, we use kind of one a week this year and rotate them through just like, hey, you know, this week's going to be about, you know, how selfless can you be this week uh, for your teammates and, and those things. We go into uh, homecoming week, you know, it's about loyalty. You know, look at all the people coming back and, you know, spending time with us and our university and, you know, how loyal they are. And we're trying to develop that type of admin atmosphere and that type of experience for our kids so they have that feeling when they want to come back when they're older and be great alumnus of the university and you know the the you know the the grit obviously is a big tag word now uh, but uh, you know I believe in that idea that it's not always the most talented guy it's the person who's 
you know, willing to persevere and put the time in and, and, and all those things. So, you know, th- that's kind of how we built those core values. Obviously the, the culture is so important. It's as important or more important than, than what you're doing on offense or defense. Uh, and it's going to get you through those tough times when you face them. And obviously every team uh, in this sport is somehow going to face adversity every single year. So uh, I think it can't emphasize enough the importance of building culture. Um, Within your team, obviously, your staff is important. Uh, what are the, some of the things you do to build and keep that staff together? Obviously, you want to keep those guys happy and, and, and working together and on the same page. Uh, what kind of things do you do as a head coach to ensure that happens? Well, the first thing is I try not to meet a whole bunch. <laughs> that, that, that's uh, one of the, the main things is, you know, hire good people that you trust to do the job that they're that you're asking them to do make sure they understand what that job is what it entails and then get out of their way you know that that's my biggest thing is uh, you know I want to make sure that I have people that I trust can get it done and you know if I don't trust them and they're not getting it done then that's when I have to step in um, you know I think I probably have a, a you know some of the you know, getting that, it's still that assistant mindset of, you know, time spent in a meeting sometimes is, is wasted time and just the time for the head coach to talk to people or add people. And, you know, I'd rather my defensive staff to be working on the game plan or, you know, breaking down an opponent than sitting here listening to me talk about, you know, travel, which, you know, I can talk with that individual guy about that and we can proliferate the information you know at at a different time in a quicker manner or through text message or emails and you know pamphlets or whatever it may be so you know that that's probably my first and foremost is i don't want to over meet you know we'll meet as we need to you know recruiting with the last few days we've been you know hammer in the office watching the film and setting the board and and making sure we're you know planned out for where we need to be and where we need to go but uh you know as far as like those day-to-day meetings and the off season, those day to day meetings during the season, you know, we probably meet twice a week during the season. But other than that, those guys know what they're supposed to do. They have a workflow that that's set and by the coordinator or the or myself and, you know, those things have to get done and then you're getting it done in a timely manner and we're winning football games and everybody's happy then then that's a that's a positive. Uh, so I think it's more about people and, and choosing the right people more than anything and then letting those guys provide them what they need to be successful. Yeah, the servant leadership piece of really getting guys to understand that it's it's not about you, right? It's about the guy standing next to you. It's something I think I've I've emphasized for quite a bit. And uh, I know I've, I've heard that from you before. It's obviously a great way of teaching guys the importance of leadership, uh, whether it's a player or a coach. You know, uh, you got to serve the people that uh, you're working with. And I think it's important to use that term rather than you're working for someone or someone's working for you. You're working with those people. You work with people, not not for them or expect them to serve you. You're, it's always got to be the other way around. No question. I think, you know, the the difference between, you know, kind of the tip of the spear leadership and the foundational leadership, I probably more lean towards the foundational leadership. I want to be the guy pushing people from behind and providing them the structure and the foundation to get what they need done and then let those guys grow and, and be, you know, you know, motivated from, you know, their successes as, as we go forward. All right, so we're going to get into some X's and O's here a little bit. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about a go-to play, right? What is the, the play that uh, 
you know, maybe is your signature play, the one that you're going to call 15, 20 times a game and uh, basically say, hey, we're going to out-execute you. What is that play? And kind of explain, explain it with some key coaching points. Well, I think, you know, in the passing game, you look at a, a basic three-step concept. And you know, we stole this from Ohio State back in the day when I was, I think, at Kenyon probably um, watching them practice. And it's a combination of the – Noel Mazzoni stuff and then some of the, uh, you know, uh, Trestle stuff that he was doing. But in our indie package, in our speed up two-minute package, we have a basic three-man scat concept with double slants on the backside, uh, tailback. So open two-by-two. We can do it out of just about any two-by-two variation, but um, we're on an open two-by-two. We're going to swing the back, make him the third man in the scat uh, or you know, sneak concept, as we call it, uh, with number one receiver from that side running the, you know, six to eight yard over route of the flat defender, number two to that side running the corner route, building your three-man flood to that side, and then the double slants, uh, squeeze slant from number two, and a read tempo slant of number one to the field. Uh, and again, like I said, a lot of times I like the sneak, the three-man stretch into the boundary and the double slant to the field uh, just because I think the space is better for the double slant. And I think it puts the, you know, a, a true Mike backer in a real bind. Am I opening to the field or am I opening to the back? And I can put that question in his mind. It makes the read a lot quicker for the quarterback of which side am I working. For the quarterback, it's pretty simple. We're just kind of reading the mic uh, and, you know, we call a mic eval. Mike opens to the back into the boundary. We read the flat defender to the double slant. If the mic opens to the double slant to the field, then he reads the flat defender on the on the scat sneak route and the the stretch uh, swing of the tailback. Got it. And and for you, you know, a play like that, that is your go-to. How many times a week are you going to make sure that's scripted in practice? Well, if it hits the game plan, and again, like I said, it's a it's an interesting play because it doesn't always hit the call sheet. It's more in our ready list of of our tempo and indie plays or our two-minute plays, um, but that will be something that will probably get seven to eight uh, opportunities during the week at practice that we're getting that thing called. Uh, much higher levels of investment in the, in the spring and the fall camp where that call is just getting rotated in over and over and over in all of our two minutes in the speed-up tempo sessions in the spring and the, in the fall. And then when we get into game week, we're a little bit more uh, prepping those, you know, change-ups and, and uh, you know, different calls that we've set for the week and for that opponent. Uh, but we will catch it probably, you know, six to eight times during the week between uh, a, a, a skelly session and a team session. Got it. And as far as, uh, you know, variations in, in that, I guess, how do you try to get your playmaker involved the most? Is, is there one of those routes that you feel is going to come open more or – uh, do you just count on the defense reaction and your quarterback getting to the right spot? Yeah, our, our biggest thing is our re-progression takes us to the guy, you know, and we want to make sure we have enough you know, skilled players to, you know, provide us an opportunity to hit a lot of different spots. Uh, obviously, when we set our indie package because it's one formation, one kind of direction and, and all that stuff, 
um, once we set our indie package, we're trying to say, okay, hey, the tight end is going to be the squeeze slant guy. That's all he ever practices, you know, on this on this play. And the the Z receiver is always going to be the tempo slant, so he's always working on that. The X receiver is always going to be the scat player. You know, our slot receiver slash uh, B receiver is going to always be the corner route. So you know, when we run that, you know, in our route timing, you're probably getting that, you know probably 20 times a, a, a week in practice in route time. But they're always, I mean, those guys from the time they've got here, all they've run in that indie play is those individual routes. Not right and left, not flip, not X doing this and Z doing that. Now they need to learn the idea and the concept if we want to change it up. But when we call that indie play, it's always that with those guys with the same break foot, with the same, you know, you know, movement. I think we probably took that a little bit from, you know, uh, you know, the, the uh, air raid guys and how mummies of the world and things like that, that hey, this guy's always just going to work that route. Now we're not completely vested in that because we will flip strength in our normal formationing. But in our indie stuff, those guys just practice those concepts and, and routes every time in the indie pack. Let's let's take this a step further. Let's talk about a critical situation now. So we're going to put you in. Uh, time running out. We're we're uh, about forty five seconds to go in the game. We're on the plus thirty. It's third down and seven. And we've been seeing a you know pretty good mix from from the defense. So they've done a good job of mixing up coverages, fronts. Uh, yeah, adding some pressures in there. On a third and seven, time running out. We got to get get points on the board. We got to score uh, a touchdown. What are you calling in this situation? Is it one with with two downs to go, with the time running out? You going the whole way? You're picking up half now to get the the fourth down conversion. Uh, you know, what do you think you're going to do in this situation? Well, if we have enough, like I said, with the if there's enough time to get two plays, if I had a timeout or whatever that may be, I would probably go down distance efficiency and treat it as a third down or a second down efficiency. So I would look at it like, hey, I need to get half the yards I need here. And I'm going to go for it on fourth down regardless. So, you know, sometimes that may be, a, you know, a tunnel screen or a quarterback draw RPO with the out throw or something like that. Just to say, hey, I want to get five, six yards out of this. If it hits, great. I still have a timeout. I can stop it. And I'm going to go on fourth down anyway. So my two-minute mentality on a third and seven, third and long goes back to a second down, down and distance efficiency mentality and just say, hey, I'm going for it on fourth down regardless. So treat it as sec- an extra second down and a third down coming up on the next play. Um, if it were a time where I didn't have a timeout and things like that, we'd probably run one of our indie plays, which is uh, you know a, a comeback at one, a 15-yard comeback at one. We'd have a 12-yard spot up at two uh, and a two by two open formation again, uh, and then to the uh, to the opposite side would be a smash change with one running the stem corner, number two running the arrow route, and I think that gives us uh, you know two guys spotted up at 12 to 15 yards, you know where they can break and get out of bounds or whatever that may be, and it also gives me a kind of a cover two and man beater to the other time other side with the with the smash change that gives me a corner route in a one on one scenario as well. And it gives me a hot out to the flat quickly with a number two going to the arrow, so I can get him out of bounds. You know, if if uh, you know if the 
blitz comes, they outnumber us. I can get a, a quick throw out uh, built in, so I don't have to have hots or anything you know, prepared with that. We just have our, our way to get out of it uh, with built into the concept. And, you know, pretty easy read for the quarterback for us. We'll just look at the 12-yard spot up by the tight end. Uh, if, if there's any type of compression, meaning, you know, in our terminology would be like a cover two compression where there's a Sam walling the spot up in a corner, you know, low on the comeback outside, we'll spin our eyes back to the smash change. Um, otherwise, we work inside out of the spot route to the comeback against three, against quarters, against man, against everything but uh, a cover two compression to the spot and the comeback. Um, we'll spin our eyes back to smash everything else. We just work spot and come back. Got it. So you you really could pick up a nice chunk there, or at least uh, put yourself in a manageable situation. So you kind of have yes. the best of both worlds there. All right, coach. We're gonna finish up here with uh, what I call a two minute drill. Just some uh, kind of random questions here, real quick. What's a book you'd recommend to our listeners, and why? Well, I'd say the first thing, and this is you know a little probably cheesy, but any book that you can read with your kids you know i think that's the hardest part that i have you know during this time of the year uh being seasoned into recruiting is just finding a time to uh you know read a book with uh with your kids spend some time with them so that would be the first thing that i would prioritize is not to maybe individual reading time or reading time for my profession but reading time for the family i think is key uh you know we read as a as a you know as a program we brought in uh and or, uh, daniel rodriguez who was a receiver uh for clemson who fought in afghanistan he came in and talked to our team this year and he has a book called rise and it was just about his his fight and his battle uh, you know, in Afghanistan from that experience and then going on as a walk-on and being a receiver at uh, at Clemson. Pretty, you know, inspirational story. Uh, you know, a minority kid coming from a, you know, a tough, you know, upbringing to the military to, you know, not having any high school film really and just turning himself into a guy that got into camp with the L.A. Rams and was a great story. I think the book is, is pretty cool. We presented it in our leadership, uh, one of our leadership breakfasts. Uh, so that was a good one. What's uh, something you've, you know, guys already talk about, always talk about if you take one thing from a clinic, then it was worthwhile going there. So what's something you've taken from a coaching clinic and been able to implement? Well, I think, you know, you look at, uh, you know, just time management at, at practice, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, how you're practicing and things like that. But, you know, I was able to go down to Texas and just kind of watch a little bit of how they practice. And this was, oh, shoot, years back. But, uh, you know, getting a chance to watch those guys practice the efficiency, the music, the you know the walk through tempos and, and things like that I think you know I think you know clinics are great but you know get, just getting to watch people work and, and what their practices look like in the spring is is really key what's uh, a specific on-field technique scheme or play right now that maybe you saw this season that you're excited about learning more about well you know we're running a, we've ran this last two years a bunch of the hitch boot man we got the single man hitch concept with the the boot flood concept away uh, and have really uh, you know gone to running that a lot uh, you know, we're, we're calling that, you know, that may be our new, you know, kind of indie, indie play, but we did put it into our indie package. Uh, we ran it a ton, uh, had a lot of success and still trying to do, learn more about the route combinations that can go with it and, 
you know, kind of how we uh, continue to formation it. But it's a pretty dynamic play. We're running single man hitch and then booting the the whole group away uh, and running flood concepts the other way. So I'm I'm really you know something I want to make sure that we're you know even more dynamic with in the offseason would be hitch boot right now. What's a major concern you have about the future of our game? We hear all the time about you know safety issues, concussions. We hear guys screwing up whether you know even at the local level, high school guys all the way up through the, the pros and all these things get in the media. But what's a concern you have for our game right now and maybe some things we could do to solve those problems? Well, I, I think, you know, and, and I touched on it a little bit earlier with the technology piece, but, you know, this idea that these kids are worse than we were or worse than the generation before or something like that, nah, man, they're just different. And I think the, the, the thing that we need to be able to do is tap into the things that are important with these millennials or Gen X or whatever you're calling them, you know, this timetable and things like that uh, of kids coming up right now and, and not trying to hammer a, a, you know, a square peg into a round hole. How do we tap into these guys? They are so much more uh, intelligent. They have so much more access to information, all those things, their attention you know, their attention spans are shorter because they learn faster and have access to more information. And, and what do we do and how do our, you know, the, the coaches in this profession continue to tap into the greatness that, that is available in those kids? I think that is the hardest part because I see a lot of coaches getting burned out <laughs> talking about how these kids are different or hard to coach or they're so individualized or whatever the issues are, you know, the accountability to the, you know, who's, uh, who's the most, uh, the most selfish, you know, uh, of these generations. Well, we got to tap into that at some point to make sure that this thing continues to go, you know, and I think kids may start to lose that, um, you know, love for the game. If we keep trying to maybe coach it the way it was coached, 10, 15 years ago. Coach, last question here. What advice would you give a young coach looking to make it in his profession? Be willing to be poor and, and put a bunch of effort into it early. You know, that that's the, you know, everybody sees the, the millions of dollars that those guys are making at some of the bigger schools and, and doing those things. Don't do it for that. Don't do it for the money. Make sure you're in it for the right reason. Make sure you're in it for the long haul and understand that, you know, if you're able to do something that you love, you'll be, you'll be a better husband. You'll be a better father, even if the money is not the same as what you can do somewhere else. And I think that's a that's always a hard one to learn. It's a hard one to get through. But you know, if you got a GA or you know you got to put your own money into it to, to get it started, and you really truly feel passionate about it, and are going to be the happiest guy doing that job, then, uh, you know, get it going and, and stick with it. Coach, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate all the advice you shared. And, and uh, I really like talking about the technology piece with you. Um, I look forward to, to seeing you in Nashville and talking to you more about some of these things. And uh, again, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great uh, mouthpiece for the profession. And I hope uh, guys get a little something out of uh, the talk today. Thank you again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Please, if you are enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes or Spotify and click five star for a rate. If you have a minute, write a review. It really helps the podcast. Check out our new home for the Coaching Coordinator podcast. That's at coachandcoordinator.com. And follow me on Twitter at Coach K. Grabowski.